That was me back in January, barely hanging on to a jump bike in central Berlin's nighttime traffic. It seems like a good place to begin this final episode of the Trips Berlin series, because some of the most visceral pleasures I've had over the years have come while crawling every quadrant of this great open city, like boozed-up surveyors making mental mischief maps. It's a city which even now, three decades after the wall fell, seems to delight in its own openness. And man, have we taken advantage of that over the years. On bike, on foot, taxi, kayak in the western lakes, S-Bahn in the northern forests, U-Bahn through the dark middle. The city that used to be trussed up like a turkey is unbound and beckoning for any number of deep drinking nights. And exactly that is what it came to on my final evening in this city, this visit, with this episode's guest, musician Anton Newcomb, frontman of the Brian Jonestown Massacre, now Berlin resident, living in a city that keeps perfect pace with his open, productive mind. After recording this episode, but still very early on in the pandemic, Anton actually came down with COVID-19. As he texted me yesterday, he recommends you all avoid it if you can. But since his recovery, he has been a beast in the studio, eating well and waking early and putting out prolific works in progress. You'll hear in this conversation the kind of mind that just instinctually makes buckets of lemonade in a very lemon-filled year. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Well, let's start with what I brought you, because you and I had texted earlier today, and you said, well, I'll drink whatever, and I'm taking you up on that. Okay. This, this beer is something that's actually pretty dear to me from my past in Germany. It never ceases to just fucking astound me. It's a, it's a full half liter barrel of a Danish beer called Faxe. It's got a, a Viking on the front. Okay. I haven't had this in maybe 15 years, but I remember it being... Uh, pretty pretty bad, mm-hmm. just like a real standard bad lager. Mm-hmm. But just the size of it, you know, and the fact that it's carbonated, so it's got a um, it's got a presumed velocity at which you would drink it, because otherwise it's going to go flat. Okay. So it's just the fact that they sell these in German supermarkets to say like some of our customers will drink a half a liter of, of beer in 15 minutes before it goes flat. It's like a Stein. <laughs> it's yeah, I guess it is. Um, but it's worse than a Stein. Anyway, <laughs> this is what we got. Cheers, man. How much did it pay you to drink this shit? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This episode brought to you by Foxa. It's, oh. um, wow. Reminds me of American beer. Yeah. <laughs> I could see you were searching for like a devastating insult and you well, found it. Well, not insulting, but it just reminds me of like... It's like reminds me. Of, it's a malt liquor almost. Yeah, it or, reminds me of like Colt Forty Five. It has the same exact taste. You ever remember in Seattle the Rainier beer? Whose yeah. Tagline was the beer from here. Yeah, <laughs> which is like the best thing they could say about it. It's a it's a weird thing to come to Berlin and say Germans like beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds uh, sounds somewhat obvious, but I I'm constantly and again reminded they like it cold. They like it warm. They like it. At noon, they like it, you know, at 2 a.m. It's, um, it's a real passion here. I like the purity thing, uh, you know, the four ingredients law here. It, and, you know, but you're a Californian. Yeah, I'm not really a big beer drinker anyways. I don't drink very much, but I used to love Anchor Steam and, 
you know, when, when I was really active, walking up and down the, the hills in San Francisco, just going about your business is active, let alone working or whatever you're doing, right? But, um, and then you, you get to your house and it's like two, three, four flights up. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, the, I used to love that European thing of just hitting the pub for just a drink or two. Yeah. Know, be, before I went home. And yeah. Then, and then one, one for sleepy. I lived in the lower hate, so there was Mad Dog in the Fog and uh, Knock Knock in a couple bars, you know, so. Yeah. Um, all right, let's start there. California. You're not from San Francisco originally. No, I'm not. You moved up there. I'm from Newport Beach, California. Yeah. Man, you have come a long way, baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This little lemon fell far away from the tree. Um, but that's okay, you know? I... There's, uh, there's things that I miss, but they don't exist. So what can you say? Yeah. I lived in a lot of places, not too many, but, uh, we were just, uh, before we came on the mic, we were talking about the ghosts of San Francisco, yeah. how all the town just seems to be somewhere else. And you can just remember what used to be. I there. really feel it. Yeah. You know? I really feel it. I know very few people that still live there. Joel from my band and some people come out of the woodwork and a lot of, there was an exodus for a while to the East Bay. And, and I, I, I know people there too, but yeah, well, the economy chased them over there too. <laughs> yeah. Everywhere. Right. It's, everywhere I move it becomes this amazingly popular place in, in including here. It's you crazy. Mean, this whole time it was you. It's yeah. It doesn't matter effect. where I go. It's crazy. Portland, Oregon, you name it. You I'm know? putting your ass in Bucharest and see if you well, can. Well, it's like, I mean, I pick all these dodgy places to live, whether it's Echo Park in Los Angeles or something. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, there's like a yoga studio. It's like safe for white people, and they're they're selling India Indian clothes and stuff. You know, this is this coffee is, shops. This is the truth, man. And I, you know, the times I've congratulated myself on having found a place that I feel is a nice balance of you know kind of interest and other shit and costs. I all of a sudden look around and realize I'm not the only asshole with that idea. You know. <laughs> When I moved, when I moved to uh, Prince Lauerberg, on sh and you know, there were there were no ATM machines. Uh, they didn't accept any cards of any kind anywhere on the east side, and little things like that. And then you fast forward a couple of years ago, and there was like Patagonia pop up stores and Tesla pop up stores. It's just ridiculous. They have this thing a place sneakers and, th and things it's like a swedish firm and it used to be this club that had a basement cave grotto thing and then the top and it was called white trash a go-go and you know it was a crap american style restaurant yeah it's all chinese interior it was it was just mad right but anyways one day the landlord just said Okay, the rent is twenty seven thousand euro a month, and the guy was like, "What are you talking about?" Okay, get out. And I was like, "Who's gonna pay twenty seven? All of a sudden, it's like Nike exclusives, a Swedish company. And then I'm thinking, "How the hell are they gonna clear ninety seven grand a month yeah. off sneakers, and then make a profit?" And then I realized that it, I, you know, started to see these one hundred twenty people lined up as they, you know, launch each wheezy. Jeezy, whatever it is, right? Yeah, yeah. And I realized that it's all subsidized by the actual clothing companies. 
Right. You see those exclusives, they become like these uh, pop-up showrooms. Right. It's like, the, that's the same fucking problem in New York. It's is. the same thing with nightclubs. It's everything. You know, it's like, not that they're doing two, two euro, making money off a two euro lady tonight. You know, it's, it's the, the fact that it's an absolute vodka event or whatever it is, right? That's the thing. It's like, they're not even, they're just, um, yeah, like you said, they're showrooms. They're lost leaders. <laughs> And then how well, are you going to fight money. against that? They're making money, but off the branding side. Well, they can't lose, and it's the same thing in the record industry. That when you hear about things that buck the trend, uh, uh, this has been quite a while, but it's like the White Stripes, Seven Nation Army, selling a million copies on vinyl. You know, it's just ridiculous. But when you have the right distribution behind you, they can they can contact every store and say keep a hundred copies. Because if you don't sell them, you can have them. No shit. Yeah. You know, that's a little bit... Because otherwise you have to wait till the, the shop does stock if they've only ordered three. So then you've got a, a month-long lag or something. They're like, no, no reordering. You got it. And then they can't lose. Yeah. We, I mean, publishing does this shit too. I got a friend of mine that works at Talia, the book chain here in Berlin. And mm. she was telling me some of the mafia tactics of the <laughs> publishers. You know, it's just like you need to order 10,000 of these. And then, you know, they've got their own kind of counter moves, but they literally will have an entire section of the store that will always be Stephen King. Yeah. No matter if anybody's buying Stephen King. Same with Coca-Cola. It, it stops the, the choice field. You know, when you walk into a, a supermarket and you go down the aisle and half of it is Coca-Cola, I'm not talking about their diversified investment and in branding now. I'm just talking about plain Straight old two, la two red liters. Coke. You know, if they're taking um, half the half the aisle up with that, um, then it, it's stopping somebody from choosing something else because there's not as many choices available. There's limited shelf space, and that's why they do that. They're just, you know. But anyway, yeah. God bless them. God love them. They figured it out. <laughs> they figured out how to how to make it work. And Berlin is like, it always feels. Yeah, it feels like it's kind of. A little bit in the slipstream, like a little bit behind some of those, some of those nastier developments in the states, but not too far behind. Like, it just depends what you're talking about. You know, we don't we're not bombarded with billboards everywhere, and that's by design. You know, they don't want it. That's true. Those are laws, and and it's kind of nice. Um, so you're from Newport Beach. Mm -hmm. You started going to clubs out there. Well, let me tell you the story. There used to be a place called the Cuckoo's Nest on. Placentia, and it was down the street from my mom's place. Um, and it was original punk rock, new wave, whatever happens, place, as, as crazy as Los Angeles or New York or anything. Of course, CBGB's was a little bit before that, you know, obviously, because you had Max's Kansas City and all that stuff was sort of petering out through the Velvets with no Lou Reed into like the Dolls and all that other, the Ramones and everything else, right, that happened in television. But um, in the later 70s, you know, it was, it was there for international acts. So I could just walk there in the middle of the night with my friends when I was 11 or whatever. And we, we figured out this trick that was pretty amazing. Because you can't, you can't go see bands generally in California since the ride on Sunset Strip happened. 
at that time in 66 or 60, I think it was 66. They closed it to kids? No, what happened, there used to be coffee houses that had go-go bands and the craziest, you name it, right? It was Love, The Birds, whoever. They were, the venues were actually coffee houses as much as the Whiskey Go-Go, and they were all age limits. <clears throat> and eventually there was a plan from the city council because so many people were hanging out um, that they were going to make a 10 o'clock curfew. And at that point, there was riots. All the kids started protesting. There was riot on Sunset Strip. California changed the law, so you had to be 21. Live music was in a, was in only in a bar, and you had to be 21 to drink. So that was the end of live music, and that was the end of youth culture. That's so crazy. Besides school dance, uh, county fair. <laughs> Seriously. 4-H. How do I not know about it? Because that very directly affected my teen years. But all of, uh, all of Southern California was like that, you know? Yeah. Uh, surf bands, the safaris, everybody, they were playing high two beats. All these different cities had their own coffee houses and clubs. But um, How'd you get around it as an 11-year-old? Well, no, okay. I learned a trick. See, the punk rockers would, uh, they would stage dive, right? And so the bouncers, and they, they would slam dance. So the bouncers would grab these guys, and they would kick open the back door with a dude in the headlock to throw them out, right? So we would stand on either side of the door, you know, we would stand against the wall, right? And inevitably, first song of the, the fast stuff, door kicks open, some guy goes throwing out with the bouncer pushing him and we just run in. And you just go, if you could, up the stage and jump off into the audience or around into just where everybody was and you were inside. And we could just do that endlessly. You're like fucking woodland creatures, like looking for your. But so quick, so quick. You know what I mean? <laughs> the like, quick twitch. Yeah, to like get you in like there. water gushing into the Titanic or something, right? And then once you're in the middle, who's there's gonna no fetch way you they out? could catch you. That's so amazing. Yeah. It was Did you take some beatings in there? I mean, this is a, a punk rock music. No. As an 11 year old. No, no, no. Everybody really got a kick out of the, of me and my friends. But the funny thing about it was. You actually ended up making friends uh, because uh, it's it's hard to people uh, for people to imagine uh, what what music became when Nirvana was around and then it morphed into all these different things. When you know, obviously, everybody says punk was dead as soon as the Pistol said it was over or whatever, and everybody realized, but. Everybody was so f ignorant, you know? You'd walk down the street and people would drive up on the curb trying to run you over in a truck. And this would be daily. You'd be, you'd be walking past a school and the coach would just sick the football team. Go kill that faggot! And all of a sudden you'd be chased by just as many people as you could possibly imagine kicking you. And um, or you get kicked out of school and go to a new school and everybody would beat you up at once just to say, this this is what we do, you know? And then all of a sudden, really quick, I got into subterfuge, which is basically deceitful camouflage, you know, to try and be fucking invisible as, as I could possibly be. Well, if you have entire football teams chasing you down the street. It isn't that. It isn't just that. It's the, the police would arrest you in Orange County, specifically in Newport, for, for being out after 10, and the, and the law was called <clears throat> lack of parental control. 
So you would you would sit there until your parents would come get you. That's fucking loaded, man. Yeah, but they would actually do it to everybody. If there was a party and the police pulled up, you know, they would block off all the streets and they would arrest everybody. So, you know, you'd read in the paper next day that 950 people, kids, were arrested at a party with some punk band playing. And, it might, and you might have got lucky because you went over the fences. It, it, it reminds me when you talk about this, like, ultimate repression mm. of, like, innocent things. Like, people expressing themselves, trying to have a good time in like well-heeled southern california isn't it i mean it's kind of like a perfect petri dish for punk if you're gonna start to fuck with people and try to deny their right to play music it makes music like political and like it urgent put, it puts lead in your pencil you know because conformity is the name of the game and it's absolute and uh you know a good example uh, it's it's subtle and it's it's ugly at the same time you know i hated those people because i i knew pretty it, it, was, it was like a process. It's probably boring for you, but very young, I tried to figure out why they were so unhappy. And then I came to a realization that it was because they weren't doing what they wanted to do. So I couldn't be that way. How did, how did that come adults, from? Adults, you mean? Just the adults in that Newport Beach environment. Yeah, you know what I mean? Superficially, like a lot of people didn't seem like they were really... Yeah. You know, I'm not talking about surfers and stuff that I knew. Yeah. Just talking about... Uh, uh, Friends, parents. I, I knew a lot of joyful adults, but I could tell that I would have to be a real fucker if I wanted... You know, uh, besides brown nose in the family or whatever, I'd have to be a real fucker to live there. So I decided that that isn't what I wanted to be. So that whole <clears throat> mentality, you know, uh, was gone immediately. I was just thinking about trying to find the language to get out. So the first time you got out of, I mean, obviously it sounds like you were, you know, flowing like water into the punk rock clubs and, and trying to get your cultural escape. But, but the it was first a time, music thing, you know, because a lot yeah. of things that aren't really punk rock, punk rock opened the door for, for a lot of stuff. Like I saw magazine playing PIL and all these things very early. So they're not really punk rock, but they wouldn't have happened without it because it was kind of interesting. Johnny, Johnny, Johnny Rotten's a, a perfect example. Um, when you try and become, you're like young, you try and become Johnny Rotten, you become yourself, <laughs> hmm. you know? But if you try and be like Sid Vicious, you become like this glue-sniffing derelict that's descending uh, on, the, on the street, sort of. There's like two totally different weird things about it. You can't be like Johnny Rotten because he's just, him there's a difference between not giving a fuck what you say and not giving a fuck about you and that guy's you know right. he's hung in there i mean he doesn't care so much about his weight but besides that you know he's still he's still around so and what is it it's just the expression then the ability to just be your own fucking self in this strange bubble you grew up in that's well, what it was you know it, it's the product of um giving yourself permission to to be yourself and some people uh, are beautiful that way, you know? They excel. Like, what they have to offer is amazing. Because you can, you, can, you can kid yourself and say, I'm just being myself by uh, pretending I'm in the Jesus and Mary chain, like, 30 years later, or whatever, wearing black sunglasses and a leather jacket. Well, whatever it is, you know? Whatever it is you're doing. But um, some people, a fair amount of people, um, you know, when they're, whatever they're doing, when they have no idea 
and they're they're trying to come up with something. They're the first thing they reached for isn't something else that they know. You know, they reach into the fire of the unknown. You just you just do things. You got to understand a big part of everything else is copying other other things. Like everything, it doesn't matter what you see. You know, people are are, are feeding off of other things. Yeah, but you, I mean. I think I understand what you're saying is like you are making conscious decisions to, to use whatever that, whatever those uh, influences are to, to find out who you actually are. Well, most people hang very heavily on other things and they're very, they're good at it. You know, the, most of the masters are, are very good at, at um, synthesizing combinations of, of uh, other things that are beautiful. <laughs> Where do you fall on that? Are you good at it? Well, I'm interested in different things, see, like, to me, I'm less interested in blues music, you know, so it doesn't pigeonhole me in psychedelic that way, because I'm not necessarily interested in blues formats, and to me, I'm just interested in, it, it doesn't matter, it's like a blender of things, but it's all sort of presented in this playable way of just the same equipment that the Beach Boys were using or something in the early 60s. So it doesn't matter what I'm playing, you know, but it has nothing to do with them. It's just possibilities in the way that um, the Beach Boys is doing this Chuck Berry do 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 you know, thing, right? Yeah. All squeaky clean, right? With the um, Letterman or whatever, this 50s harmonies. And then all of a sudden, wow, they're pet sounds and doing this mind-expanding, you know, whatever the hell it is. When I mean, I'm, I'm interested in those possibilities more than just. I would I would love to be able to rip that off, but I can't. <laughs> I don't got it in me. But you see it all the time with everything. You would see it with, uh, you know, I have a radio program, and um, if I'm doing something live, I'm so natural, you know. But when I tape next door, there's there's no way it's ever going to be good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It takes me like five hours if I'm playing records rather than just the two-hour slot. Right. Uh, without a thought, you know? Right, to just, like, go and blast. You know, oh, being self-conscious about my voice, it's, it's, yeah. wow, I sound stoned or something. <laughs> yeah. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You're saying this stuff like you're, you know, kind of, you'd work too hard on stuff, but I feel like you were very instinctual, like very early on. Is that is that accurate? Like, when you were young, when you started watching music, when you started playing music, you had the instinct to just go to yourself and not to others. I mean, is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, you know, uh, 
there's the weight of the whole wannabe when that's true. Like you want you want to be something so so much. Like this is what you want to do. But my thing started out that um, the, the parents would be away. That's an excuse for a party. So you were either talking somebody into having a party and then blowing it out as crazy as it could possibly be. So we used to have this technique of um, that, that I figured out, which was um, you get three pretty girls and you sit them down on a little parking curb right next to the front of the liquor store and you wait for the construction guy to come uh, pull up after work, you know, to get his beer. And you say, excuse me, mister, I'm trying to get laid. Will you help me get some beer? <laughs> oh, man. And it really would work. Who who among us could could deny that young man? And it would work. It would work. I would get kegs. I would get whatever. So then the next thing would be like, oh, let's have a band. And it was all about making up bands, you know, and you would just do that for parties. But see, that's... It was next to impossible to get gigs for a long time. But that's where you leave many people behind. It's just this, this seeing that party as, as a canvas, not just for getting laid, but for entertainment, for having some sound, some music, ideas popping in your we, head. We were totally outlaws. Like all of our friends, our, our friends, brothers, everybody was an outlaw. So, but that also made us the coolest people at the same time, you know? So, uh, in the weirdest way, you know, there was like, there was a healthy subculture in Southern California. Right. You know, the, Bands within 15 miles of my house, there was a lot of good ones that came from there. What was the best, like, what, what's the band that you remember? Well, it's great watching things like, uh, it was great watching bands like Adolescence and Souls Distortion play at people's houses. You know, you're just like, fuck. You know, that band is psycho, you know? And it was crazy. You would see bands and the, there would be a party and the band would be in the garage and parties in the living rooms and uh, in the backyard. Um community centers and just it was non-stop crazy and then that stuff was inspirational in because I, I tell people this all the time you know I never thought I could play music from watching a clip of the Beatles or anybody else on TV hee-haw with my great-grandma or Lawrence Welk show N none of that shit ever showed me that I could play music or uh, uh, do that um, in the way that <clears throat> if you grew up like Patty Cash or somebody where your grandma and all your cousins were playing and had a history of it. And, oh, well, I want to sing. Go ahead and sing along. You want to strum on the guitar? Please do. It's a different situation. But once you see all those idiots, you're like, I can do this. Right. And then it, it morphed into like, none of you fucking idiots can write music. <laughs> like, I just want to sing and this is horrible, you know? This is a shame. Never mind about me being a bad singer. It's like, this music is horrible. Your ideas are horrible. You went to junior college uh, in Southern California or yeah. up in... OCC. OCC, okay. So it wasn't very far away, but it was already a different kind of stage of your life, a different clique anyway. Oh, I wasn't really interested in it at all. You know, it was just like something to do to say um, you were doing something for a little bit. Right. I mean, I used to like to use places like that. Even when I moved to San Francisco, like I can't tell you how many years I would use their job placement line to get temp jobs. Mm. Just lie. Well, you're in school, aren't you? A little bit. Old? I'm doing film. You know, it's like, 
<laughs> get a job delivering like brand new Range Rovers, you know? Oh man. Yeah. I would go pick them up. God, I, you know, I would love to, I'd love to do a really great story about temp agencies in the, in the nineties. I don't, I don't know how that's working now. I'm sure it's even more dystopian, but I remember just, you know, you show up in the morning and they send you a dishwasher job or something. Well, it wasn't like that. It was just so strange in San Francisco because a lot of times I didn't want to work. But um, if I, you know, I remember like going out and needing a job and going, fuck, what the hell am I going to do? Even if you wanted to be a busboy, it was impossible. Yeah, you had to like hustle. No, I mean, they've got just like a bazillion gay models that are like, professional bus boys from both coasts that just want to live in San Francisco. Like, where have you worked? I've worked at all these restaurants. You know, they got these CVs that are mad, right? So they're just like, have you ever done this? What? Pick up dishes? You know, it's like fucking hell. I'm sorry. You know, and you're just like, okay, I need to think again. But, um, but that, that's exactly what the temp agency is for, is for the man who does not actually want to work, but has woken up that morning and realized that he had to work. What drove you north when you had this great scene, or at least this, you know, Well, I knew L.A. Frictional. You know, I already knew L.A. from being yeah. a teenager and doing underground clubs and all that stuff. So I already knew what L.A. was about. And I wasn't uh, fascinated by the specter of getting a car and... Mm-hmm if you think about all the different things that you have to accomplish, uh, I wanted to play music, right? So a car and rent, all that stuff together, it it chains you down to a certain type of life. It's like having a student loan. It's the same kind of shit, same kind of money drain. Exactly. Car insurance. Right. Then on top of that, all your money for uh, the music crap. You have responsibilities that are going to bounce you right back out of music, right? If It you, isn't that. I just can't, can't tell it. you how many stupid people that I've met that are like, well, I'm just going to get my life together, then I'm going to do this. I'm just going to get a job at a, as an art, architect, and then I'm going to try and I th- knock Oasis off the charts <laughs> or something, you I, know, I, and you're just like, I, I, it's I fucking you. ridiculous. I feel like I have one of those stupid people living inside of me like like Alien. Well, it's kind of the opposite of like the 60s guys, a lot of them, you know, if they weren't fabulously wealthy to begin with, you know, if they're middle class, they they had their connection. Like the guys in Pink Floyd had their connection as water T-boy or whatever and are in a firm. And when they decided to go and tour or or do that, they were burning their bridges. And that really like lit a fire under their ass. That's interesting. In like Europe, you can't they don't, go back. In Europe, they don't really have that thing. Like America, it's built into us that, fuck, you'll crash and burn a hundred times and rise like the phoenix, you know? <laughs> USA, baby. Yes. No, but That's true, just right? just have it. It's, that wouldn't work out here. I mean, look at, look at, Trump's a total loser, right? Yeah. He's the greatest loser, though. Uh, he is the best at losing. <laughs> constantly but you know what i mean it's like it doesn't even factor into anything bankruptcy nothing it's just like whatever divorces who cares so you were you went to san francisco because you knew that the getting a car uh having the rent would would be pressure on music but san francisco i mean it it was a consideration you know what i flipped a coin one of my friends we were out and he hooked up with (laughs) 
an airline stewardess from Lufthansa and he ended up moving to Heidelberg and then he was writing me from Lufthansa. You, you, I, I've heard this story. You've told me this story before, but, but say it now on the mic. Well, this is, so he, this he was writing ridiculous. me, he's like, Anton, man, you need to blow that pop, popsicle stand. You should move <laughs> here. You know, no problem. I'll get you a job. I got a job as a piano mover or whatever. And, um, you could, you could just, it'll be no problem. You don't have to worry about anything. Which by the way, piano mover would be like a solid fucking upper middle class job existence in the U S right. You have your healthcare paid for and your kids could go to school. And it's so pianos. weird about pianos. I don't want to get on a tangent, but, um, the thing about pianos in Germany is like, if you go to, if, if you go on eBay in, in the UK, you'll see ads like baby grand 500 quid, Listen, it's been in the family for <clears throat> two generations. The kids loved it. It's been well taken care of, but we just can't have it anymore. We're moving house. We just want a good home. Yeah. Jesus. In Germany, they value the instruments. They're like, this is a 1933 fucking Stein. And um, it's worth 12,000 euro. And everything's like that. So they have piano tuners and movers. and. Wow. Should I buy a baby grand? I mean, I'm flying Ryanair tomorrow. I think they'll charge me a lot if I take a baby grand on the flight. <laughs> but I think they charge you to go to the bathroom. And on that <laughs> note, can we pause this for one second? Absolutely. Okay. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, uh, what year did you go to San Francisco? Eighty-nine, uh, I think. But basically, because it was, uh, I, I was in love with somebody, you know. So that's when the coin flip happened. Your your friend had uh, gotten with the Lufthansa flight yeah. attendant. You could have come here and moved pianos. You decided San Francisco. It's sort over. of fortuitous. I mean, I can't be sure, but. I, I just can't imagine. This is not a slacker society, and I can't imagine unless you're like a serious anarchist, socialist type. Basically, to slack off in this society, you have to have rhetorically sound arguments. You have to say, "Hey, I'm not a bum, and this is why." You have to be like Donald Judd in the art world, saying, "This isn't a black box. This is art, and this is why." Fuck you. You know, you right. have, you really have to be able to do that, otherwise. You, you can't do it. So you got to fill out your conscientious objector form with all the paperwork. This, you know what I mean? Yeah. You can't just like kick down the door of an empty building and live there forever necessarily. Right. Well, there you, was that period after the wall came down where you could, but then but there's a reason German for paperwork. That. There was a reason for that. You know, a lot of people told me that these big giant buildings on the east side, you know, there were people, land owners that were more than happy to let people live in the 90s for... 10 years with no rent because <clears throat> these houses will become with damp and black mold will be destroyed without any heat just a number of years after so many i mean there were so many empty houses here like everybody, everybody had left. like it'll be like Chernobyl. wow with the vandalism it'll you know it'll be functionally destroyed yeah. so they're more than happy to have an occupied building of, of several people um just running the heaters and Doing yeah. it rather than 
Well, one of the great privileges of my life was to have been in Berlin in 92 and 93 a, a little bit. And um, German's going to German, right? <laughs> even going to German. Like even, <laughs> yeah, even rock and rollers will still set out a breakfast dish, mm -hmm. you know, in the morning with a doily and light candles. And even in these houses that were occupied houses, they would, yeah, they would heat the, the coal furnace. Yeah. They would... Um, However, they were living, whatever their ideologies, yeah. they would they would take care of themselves and yeah. take care of everybody around them. It's just like, and it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen because I never because I was more thinking Sid Vicious, right? Yeah. And they were thinking Johnny Rotten. Yeah, <laughs> like they were gonna take care of their community, yeah. and it was actually beautiful. And that's why Berlin had these wonderful years, and maybe it's still ongoing. But it's just mm -hmm. like that that chance of like taking care of I remember the places like, where they lived. I remember like 2007 or 2008 where a Danish hedge fund came in and bought 20,000 units in a day. That's different. That's the world we live in, but think about that. The housing market change. Can't believe I brought you Danish beer. <laughs> but just having that kind of power, you could just snuff out Airbnb. Yeah. If you wanted to get tricky. Yeah. Hedge funds. Nobody even knows what, you know, I know. the possibilities in the future. Yeah. It, it's interesting to think that hedge funds could actually, a few powerful ones like sovereign funds, like Norway's sovereign fund could completely dictate the terms of your freedom. I mean. Easily. Listen, I live in Manhattan. I feel like that's already happening. Norway has sick money. You know what I mean? They could seriously change the color of the lights on the street if they wanted to they've got a lot of money right? they got a million for every grandchild uh, great grandchild that isn't born everybody a million millionaire in their money yeah much love to you Einar but I had a great night at Bar Brutus in Oslo a couple weeks ago yeah I like Oslo the bill was $350 for some drinks and some you know how does that compare to the 10 course um regionally sourced meal that you're playing tonight <laughs> come on billy make us a deal make us a deal that we can work with here uh yeah i don't know i'm i'm intrigued I've, I've never eaten at that level in berlin i'm excited about that um so 1989 is the same year that i started high school with uh miranda lee richards who must have had something something similar i i, I just moved from key west where i've been living with my mom and i was just it was that's not, bananas yeah i'll cut you some slack because i hate florida i always thought i'd love it did you, i ever tell you this one no you thought you would you don't love want me florida? to interrupt you no go get it i i i used to be a insomniac sort of for a great period of my life uh, I'm, I'm when not, i was young i'm not totally surprised but um, tell me i didn't have a problem with it you know i would just roll with it but um so i watched a, a fair amount of tv you know with my own personal tv or whatever and so i was familiar with gentle band because that was way before my time but I, when i was real little I, I always thought like wow how cool would that be to be like have your dad be a ranger and you're taking the airboat around you got a pet bear like oh florida must be great look at them riding around doing all this shit shooting guns and this is amazing and then i got there the first time and i was like fucking yeah damn this place is grim florida knows how to let, all of it let people down in intense and serious yeah, ways so that that kind of <laughs> soured me 
It was very strange. Movie. I love Iggy, you know. That's true, and he he's chosen it. He he owns Key it. Key West is its own thing, though. See, it it is. Um, I I do desperately try to explain it, although I've stopped trying to control the narrative because people go to Key West too, also, and if they if they only spend their their day on the Happy Mile, yeah. you know, by the cruise ships, yeah. then then it's 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 out of my hands, you know. No, but I get it from growing up at the beach. What it would be like? Yeah, I just it was weird going to San Francisco, and it was very uh, I felt very uh, under assault. Um, but Elena Schwartz, who was a Russian immigrant, and Miranda mm. Lee Richards, who I don't know where the fuck she had come from, um, but from we, there, she was from there. But I, I guess also we went to you know we went to an academic magnet high school. Yeah, just, I know the one. Um, but it was it was it was it was very strange, a very impactful time. And I think I I was really friends with Miranda for like six months. You know, we'd kind of pass by each other. It was the weirdest fucking thing to. Um, at Tony's, Tony, Anthony Bourdain had told me to watch Dig because mm-hmm. he was coming to Berlin. I sent him a bunch of movies and he didn't, you know, I'm not sure he quite, you know, like Ecke Schoenhauser mm-hmm. or like, uh, you know, uh, Solo Sally or, you know, like mm-hmm. these old German films. And he was like, no, no, I'm going to see Anton Newcomb. You should watch Dig and figure out what it's about. And, uh, and then I see in like all of these like pivotal moments, it's like, oh, fuck, it's Miranda. <laughs> And yeah, was, we we didn't accomplish anything with that movie, but anyways, but yeah, I, I I mean, well, let's bounce to it. I read somewhere that you have never seen that film. Well, nobody has really. I mean, a few people have. There was a guy. There's a director's cut. It's different than that, you know. Where do you want to start? How do you not... Here, here's where I'll start. I don't talk about it very much, so it's really easy. But where would you like to start? How do you not see the theater, the theatrical release? Wrong of- answer. Where do you start? Where do you want to hear the story from? <laughs> Let's hear the story from 1989 when you get to San Francisco. If we're talking about Dig, though. Dig... Let me just put Dig to bed. There used to be an agency. What's the biggest... Talent agency now, CAA. Like William Morris, CAA. William Morris isn't as big as CAA. Okay, all right. William Morris called me and said, "We're we're doing a film on ten bands, that is about them navigating major labels, bidding wars. It's a documentary. We'd like you to be in it." This was before you signed. Right after you signed. I wasn't going to sign any no matter what. But. Uh, but already the offers to, were coming. Everybody in the world. Yeah. So I was telling everybody to fuck themselves. And so I said, sure, sure, send those people up. And when they came up, it's kind of the start when they first met me. I, 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 I said, I'm going to take over your movie. Because and they, then they laughed in the East Coast way. You're going you're gonna to what? Take over our movie? I said, yeah, because all the bands in your movie, these 10 bands have already broken up. How did you know? Six of them already have. I said, because it stands to reason. Because I know the business that, you know, these, these people, you throw money at them and all this shit. I, I said, I have a, a better idea. There's this band, I, 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 it's in the movie. Tell me you've never heard of the Dandy Warhols. No, we haven't. Here you go. So then we get going and the Dandy Warhols get signed opening up for me at my show because when Perry comes to sign me, he signs them. 
Perry Watts Russell, the president of Capitol. And Courtney's playing a game like, will you give Anton a deal? Yes, but not as good as the deal I'm going to give you because you're a star. You know, and all this shit. And I'm like, oh, just shut up. So we, we set out to like film that whole process. And what I pitched them on is I said, you know, these guys, are gonna, they're good and they're going to do whatever they're told to do and whatever needs to be done. And I'm not going to do anything. And that's black and white. See, that's and, a story. That's, that's a tension. real story. Right. Because I'm just going to say no and see what happens. Because it's funny. So then that set off the whole thing. Everybody even close to me was against me. Because they're like, I can't believe we're all starving. And you're just fucking telling these people to fuck off. And I'm like, well... <laughs> It doesn't matter because you don't write songs, so it doesn't matter. I actually know what I'm doing, so don't don't worry about it, okay? So just don't worry about that shit. So that's what that's that was all about. But so, why were you protecting their ability to find a good narrative? Why were you helping them out? Because I wanted to expose the mafia nature of the business and the, the, what it was really about because people were threatening to kill me and being a smartass, like all this fucking shit, you know? You're driving down the street. In Howie Klein's car, and he gets a phone call, and it's a bomb threat in his Beamer, saying, motherfucker, you fucked me over, I'm going to blow up your fucking Beamer right now, I know you're rolling down the such and such in the mission, and just crazy shit, you know, is going on nonstop, and all these people are on film at different points, you know, nobody okayed being in the film. No we, had, we, had spy, we had spy cameras, and they were just like, no, 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 no releases, because you could just see this, like, the slimiest shit you can imagine that goes on. If you like, you know, the casting couch, but it's kind of like the other version of it. You know, they were essentially sending prostitutes with cocaine to try and get us to party and say, oh, this is, this is, the, this is the label I want to be on. Look at the way they, they do it, you know? You said they were Swiss hookers. Yeah, basically. Essentially, it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm an A&R for the label. It's like, okay, right. <laughs> Come back to my hotel, you know what I mean? I don't know what else to call call it yeah. you know is that their job description to fuck rock guys but how does this shit get so ugly well it is ugly because they put it's ugly because it starts as like a vanity thing because they tell everybody they're going to make you famous and they're going to get you rich or do whatever it is they're going to do but we know what the story is for the vast majority of people but it starts with the a and r guys but they must tap into some fucking ugly emotions in the bands in San Francisco. I mean, well, I'm, first, I'm trying to place you in San okay, Francisco well, back then. What, what's really ugly is uh, management or labels or whatever publishing, the management discovers, say like it's 20% management. It's easier math, right? <clears throat> but if there's five guys in the band and then you tack on one more 20, that's one sixth. Okay. Okay, you figure out who's the songwriter. It's one guy, then you got 20% and the other guy's got 80%. You're the manager and the principal songwriter. Immediately, they slice the band into two pieces. See? The, so, people, that, the, people, the people that don't write songs don't get the publishing deal. And that's why Nanker Fledge and the Rolling Stones became Jagger Richards really quick. It's got nothing to do with San Francisco in the early 90s or whatever vibe is there. It's just the straight human dynamic of people coming in to try to put people against each other. And that's when you get bomb threats in a Beamer. 
that was having to do with somebody else's shit that you know with whatever four one five records or whatever the fuck was going on yeah. you know somebody else's dirty deals you know like whatever I forget who it was that that caused that phone call but it was like get out of the fucking car you know there's all these situations that were like so bananas but you know there was endless ones of these so then whatever so then it then it then it got hooked up with VH1 and they started testing it for a TV show. Oh, like a series? Jesus. Well, that's... that's One of our friends was in real world San Francisco, so VH1 already knew what we were happening because um, they um, had already come up on all of our parties in Masonic temples, see? So they were already shooting real world before it was even aired and they already knew that we were what's going on. One of our, our guitar player's roommate was Pam on Real World. So Puck and all those guys, <clears throat> you know, everybody was in on, you know. Blowing my mind. We were having this the parties. Is, so we were controlling all that shit. So yeah. everybody already knew that we were doing everything. So we got all the bands moving from the different states, coming to be a part of the scene and all this shit. And from Georgia, Red House Painters, you know, that became Mark Kozlik on 4D and all this other shit. You know, there's like a zillion bands. So <clears throat> there was all that crap. But... um. Anyways, it tested the highest of anything ever on the network, but they couldn't show it. Because dope fucking guns in the street is the basic. So then, then it bounced to Kerry Wood, and he, had, he was a producer of a certain level. He was Harmony, Harmony Corinne's producer. Right, okay. For kids and gummo and all that yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. And he was at the, there was a level in cinema at that point in Hollywood where uh, that's the top you could get. The next level up, I guess, would be Harvey Weinstein or something. Doing something completely different in the early 90s. Right. But way over that. That wasn't some experimental blowjob, brown bunny bullshit. You right. see what I'm saying? That's real fucking films. More millions, not hundreds. Yeah. So he was the top of that, that thing. And he wanted 80%. He, no, he, no, he said, you want 100% of my publishing. And I said, well, we've already recorded... We already recorded... Um, 80 songs either. I mean, I've already got 80 tracks in this film so far. <laughs> How are you going to give that all away? I said, you, fuck you, was your answer. You know, I was like, I'm already 80 songs into this movie, and you want them all to make me the next Kurt Cobain, and he's dead? You're fucking crazy. You know? Because he's, this is what he, that was his, his, his bait was, we're going to make you the new Kurt Cobain. And I was like, fuck you. <laughs> you know, like, just fuck you. So that was funny. But basically, you just see what I'm saying? It's like very crazy. Whatever happens, she's heavily pregnant and they get somebody to edit it and they make it like a story. It makes sense. And they think that it's kind of cool and they're, I think they decide that there's this dynamic like, oh, okay, well, he's an asshole, but he's got the, the goods and Courtney's an asshole, but it's this juxtaposition yeah you, you know what i mean yeah so they're thinking like this says it all like you're not you end up hating the the the, the lovable guy and you love that guy that you hate they, so they thought that was clever more than what i originally envisioned which was like we'll just show what it is because it's the weirdest damn thing it's a reality you know this is like you could just see you know but from what you just told me, it went according to your script. 
Well, I, my life never got taken out of context. See, so people get the, this, this idea about a lot of different things. You know, one thing is I was dating, I was dating Tara Sobkoff at the, at the, during this era, you know, and she was the only Ferragamo model female on the planet. I wasn't exactly a junkie, junkie loser. I might have been a junkie, but I was living in Laurel Canyon. Junkie winner. You know, I, Baltazar Getty moved out and I moved in. Yeah, oh, whatever, you know, I mean, I got maids and stuff like whatever, like I'm sitting in the sauna, but it wasn't like a million, it wasn't like a million years, you know, that was right. just a flash. And then I moved on to something else, you know what I mean? So just to say like, oh, it's this or this or that, it really wasn't really the situation and it isn't now, you know, um, but you felt like it was fucked up from the beginning. Well, it was insulting because there was a lot of stuff, like a lot of edits and just different things. See, I watched a movie in Lawyers because I tricked him. I, I, I didn't sign anything, see? So they had this whole movie down to the end, and they didn't have my signature of permission release. Oh, that must have been a scramble. So, yeah, they're scrambling to go that week to Sundance. So they call me into this lawyer's office and watch this thing, and then they slap this... 1400 page contract from me and I said I'll t I'll be taking this triple ring binder I've never seen one that big in my life only oil companies have that kind of shit and lawyers I, I guess and you haven't seen my release for this I podcast. picked it up to walk well I picked up up to walk out and they're like no 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 you can't take that I said uh, what do you mean I can't take this to my lawyer and they're like no 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 you got to sign it right here I was like fuck off man I, I go I'll tell you what I'll give you permission to show it at your fucking festival but that's all that means right now this in good faith that this will be resolved. I just fucking I go type that up and then I walked out, and that's when they nailed them. And they made a really big shitty mistake. Is uh, they tried to hardball me, you know, like with legal threats and stuff. <laughs> and this... I've, I've got a great manager. Oh, I got him just for this situation. Um, and they kept telling me that Courtney had already signed, and I was the only person, and I was. Fucking with them on their second event, right? Pursuit of happiness is the right. Do you know they, you, they broke the constitution out on you? If you stop a filmmaker over some uh, stupid thing, their job, you, they're making a movie, and you pull some stunt, you are stopping somebody from their pursuit of their they're doing their thing. If you're wow. being unreasonable, I did not realize that's in that's big. They in could our go all the way. Yeah, they can take it all the way. If you're just Say, I'm going to be a prick. You know what I mean? Like, okay, you're filming this whole thing, and then you just go. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Star yeah. Wars. They film all of Star Wars, and you're like, fuck off. You know? Right. They're like, no, 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 no. They can get you all the way to the top. But So they believe their own bullshit, because I was talking to Courtney the whole time, and I knew that he hadn't signed either. Oh, shit. So I played this, like, uh, most favored nations clause. You guys were like two perps in the in the conversation. Not really. Station. It was me. It was me doing the thing. But I just said basically to him, I said, I'm going to pull this thing with him called most favored nations clause and what it means, Courtney. He's like, I don't, I don't care what you do. I said, no, listen to me. It means that you get whatever I get, and I get whatever you get, and I'm going to put the clause in the contract so you don't have to know what I'm doing, right? Because if you and your great lawyers get a better deal than me, then good on you. It doesn't affect. Right. Right. You'll be matched. But watch. Just stay out of my way. And I just slammed him. See? I just completely pummeled him. I didn't tell him that I was, I was talking. I just completely pummeled him. 
But that's such a trip because that's like the business side version of what you saw happening on the creative AR side. Well, I knew all this stuff anyways because I studied rock and roll. You know, it's, it's one, on the one hand, it's, uh, it's fascinating. Like, right, you know, Chuck Berry is fascinated with, um, th these people are fascinated with Elvis shaking his hips or something. I think that's fascinating, right? For me, I think it's fascinating that Creedence Clearwater Revival could write so many number one hits and be sued for using their own voice because they sound too much like John Fogarty. I mean, that's how bad contracts are. Jesus. See, I knew that early. I knew that early. Those guys got screwed out of everything. That's just business. That's why they made the English play, fantasy films, the English patient. All those films was just CCR money. Wow. If it wasn't like multiplied by cocaine or something, which probably was, you know, it was like all their money made all those movies. But you had that sense from the very beginning. Once everybody started swarming, you were like, okay, I see what's happening on the back end here. Well, I just thought it was funny because I, I figured that um, yeah. all I wanted was just to be able to go some places and know that people would know to come to see me play. I, don't, I, don't, I still don't care about anything else. But you know that's what Dig did for you. Didn't it? I was already doing that. So it just, you know, everything works sort of in unison together, I think. You know, work is play. That is the best way to go. So, you know, I knew that um, if you if you got to be corralled, then you better make a really big corral, you know, and you need to think about those things. Be, whereas all my peers signed deals and signed everything away, I only can think of just a very few people one way or another, that uh, actually gained some sort of financial independence forever yeah. from playing music. My Billy Valentine would be an example, and that's mainly because of the, the way that they touch people. Um, most people signed very bad deals, and uh, many people in successful bands come from fortunate backgrounds. Right, yeah. Many, many people. And it expresses themselves in their connections or their longevity at establishing something with their resources they have. What, whatever helps, you know, whether it's Lana Del Rey or doesn't matter. Well, you know, it's funny because we... not to Lenny Kravitz or whoever, right? Not to date this conversation we're having, but I think it was like two days ago, I think Marshawn Lynch, the uh, Oakland-born running back for Seattle Seahawks, gave one of the great speeches, 90-second long, <laughs> in all of sports history where he just got up on the podium. He wasn't even answering questions. People were asking him. He just spoke directly to NFL players. And he was like, you know, like, mind your chicken, mind your money, mind your mentals. You know, make sure that you're, that you're good for yourself and you can graduate from this league and have a good and happy life after that. It was, I mean, it was this amazing, really amazing speech from a guy who never talks publicly but it was that thing. He was just saying, like, you have to look after the whole arc of things. Like, make sure you have enough money for yourself and your body is right and your money is right. Some people get it, you know? Like, the Carpenters were a phenomenally successful group. You can't even imagine how successful they were, right? The Carpenters, right? But On they, the front end or the back end? They just were just phenomenally successful. They're yeah. an iconic 70s band. They yeah. were massive, light, um, fluff music, right? But, you know, they, they were like buying apartment buildings the whole time in the <laughs> valley, you know? That's, I mean... They, were, they weren't even thinking about the other stuff, right? So, I, uh, some people 
some people are like that. And some people are, are really cool when they even came into it in that game. Like, I, I know this guy, Tim, uh, in Dallas, who has a group called the Polyphonic Spree. You know? And he's always had his shit together, like, financially. But, you know, he's got a great record shop for people. He's always had bands. He's always, like, supporting the community. But he's done so many, so much stuff. He's just got his niche. You know, he's just not some square-ass landlord kind of guy, which I think is so cool. He's, like, mega creative. Paul Phonics Paul had, like, 30 people in it for a while there going. I mean, of course, it's been some time. But he kept the power 25 for himself. Singers. Jesus. No, he's just, like, ultimately a very giving, generous person. But even for the community, he's an amazing record company and record shop. He's a, in, a, in a sort of crap part, deep elm. You know, it's not that crap, but, you know. Yeah. Like, he's a he's just such a great guy. And, and the last thing on that, the least most important thing is that he's always financially had his shit together. You know, he's just like a decent human being. And some people are like that, right? which is really cool. I, I Then f- other people stumble into fucking crazy ass shit like cigarettes. Like, how much money can those guys make? You know, they own like 20 houses in Reykjavik or whatever each. So this is the thing. I mean, I, I don't know. I think that like, if people see Dig or if they believe, you know, that just like your, your general like, if you believe in a precious love. Like that? No, just kidding. Exactly those guys. No, it's just like, one of the things that feels like you have the last laugh on all of this when people are saying like, you know, the mercurial madman or whatever this stuff is about, you know, you in relationship to your band, to the industry, you have been together with your band, making music, making albums for like 28 fucking years. Like whatever since it is. 1990. 18 albums or some More. More. But yeah, since 1990. So it's coming up on 30 years, basically. So like that is... That's an almost unheard of rock story. Yeah. And so you have all of this, like, you're combative about the industry and the, the contracts and, and, and your role in them, and you've got the power as the songwriter, but, but this is actually a, a beautiful marriage on some level with you in this career. Like, you, you haven't burned out. You haven't, like, flopped out and, and made enemies of the people that you should have been lovers with i mean that's I the thing maybe yes and no though you know i it, it's okay i guess right it's it's all okay yeah you know what <laughs> we have to go to fucking dinner now okay <laughs> i don't know where the time went the trip from roads and kingdoms is hosted by me nathan thornberg alexa van sickle is our online editor Theme music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Next up on this feed, Iraq. Erbil, to be exact, in Iraqi Kurdistan. The guest of that episode coming up is also my host of sorts in that world, photojournalist Genghis Yar. He made us both surprisingly good old fashions in my room at the Farik Hotel, and we talked about war and peace and drinking and journalism, and it's a hell of a way to kick off an Iraq series that will be coming to you for the first time without needing a subscription. Genghis Yar on the trip. 
this Thursday, October 22nd. We will meet you there.